Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. On Lord's Day, the 6th of June 2021, we were excited to welcome Callum Webster of the Christian Institute to our special afternoon meeting at Ballymacashan. This podcast is a recording that was made live at that meeting and it addresses three areas of critical concern for Christians identity issues, abortion and gay conversion therapy legislation. Callum also spoke about the work of the Christian Institute's legal department. So let's hear again what Callum had to say. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a privilege to be back with you in Ballymacashan. As Bob was praying, I think the last time I was with you, the Asher's case had only just begun or was maybe just in the offing. And many of us, of course, were in the challenges of those four and a half years. And we saw the Lord's hand in overruling and we return him to him the thanks, the praise and the glory. I want just now to think about the issue of our identity as Christian believers. And I want to refer to the passage that we've read from in Second Corinthians chapter 5 because it is much to say about the identity of a Christian believer. In our culture today, identity is a key fixation. How many times have you heard people saying things like, be who you want to be or stay true to yourself. Certainly those are the messages that our children are receiving in Disney's Frozen 2 movie to give but one example. Characters finding themselves are at the heart of many films, many stories, many novels and often that journey of self-discovery is a very selfish journey. Identity comes down to the question, who am I? It goes deeper than the roles and the relationships and the responsibilities that all of us may have. So, for example, a man may be a father, he may be a husband, he may be a son, he may be an employee in a workplace, he may be a citizen in a nation. And all of those things may be true of that man. But really, they answer the question, what am I? But they are used as things in which people seek their identity. But when we ask the question, who am I, we are driving at the core identity that underpins all of the other things that are true of a person. And this question is not just aimless philosophy. It is a key question to answer because it determines how you and I live. And of course, the Bible has the answer. In fact, it has several answers because it addresses the question at different levels and from different angles. And we want to unpack some of those this afternoon. But the first thing to say is that from a biblical perspective, our identity is not something that we as human beings choose for ourselves. Our identity is not something we construct for ourselves. Our identity is not fluid. It does not change as we reinvent ourselves. Our identity is given. It is revealed. God as creator tells us as creatures who we are. 
Scripture is clear, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, that human beings are made in the image of God. This is true of every single human being from conception, and it has fundamental implications for how Christian believers value human life. And Scripture is clear in the same verse that we are created as either male or female. And this should have a profound impact upon how we engage with the current debates around gender ideology. And again, I'll refer to that later on this afternoon. But another universal truth about the identity of all of us as human beings is that we are all sinners. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 famously states, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are sinners by our natures, sinners by our motives, sinners by our desires, and sinners by our actions and our behaviour. We were created to worship God, but because of sin, we worship created things rather than the Creator. We exchange the truth about God for a lie, as Romans chapter 1 makes clear. Instead of finding fulfilment in relationship with God, we look for that fulfilment in other things. But of course, the good news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ can transform and reform our identity. And I want to think for some minutes about what scripture has to say regarding a Christian's identity. Verse 17 of our reading said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So in Christ, we are new creatures. We are reconciled to God. A believer has this one core identity through which everything else is to be viewed. We are in Christ. We are not who we used to be outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that we were by nature the children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 makes clear. And 1 Corinthians 6 lists those who identify themselves by their sinful behaviour, the greedy, the drunkards, the thieves, the sexually immoral, and several other categories. But then comes the glorious verse 11, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So the answer to the question, who am I, changes from sinner to children of God and joint heirs with Christ. Believers are no longer identified or defined by our sins, either our past sins or our present sins. Rather, we are defined by who Scripture teaches we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christian believers live a different kind of life. We live a life centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are identified with him. We are united to him. As the passage puts it, we are ambassadors for Christ in this fallen and decaying world. We no longer live for ourselves to please ourselves, but rather we live for our heavenly king, the one who died for us and the one who was raised to life again. This is a privilege. It's a high calling that falls to every Christian 
believer. No matter where you and I go, we are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. He is with us, he is working in us, and working through us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 describes the believer as his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So being a Christian defines everything else that is true of a person. That man we thought about in opening, who is a husband, a father, a son, an employee, a citizen, is a Christian husband, a Christian father, a Christian son, a Christian employee, a Christian citizen. We are to be Christians above and before everything else. Being in Christ is who we are. It must change everything about us. We are not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, of course, how you and I fulfill the various roles we have in life must be shaped by our identity in Christ. We are to be ambassadors for him in all of those different contexts. And one thing this means is that you and I need to share the gospel. As our passage put it, we are to beseech people, to implore people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That is of central importance. This word of reconciliation has been committed to us. We're to carry it into every sphere that God calls us into. We want to see the Lord Jesus Christ honoured. We want to see him glorified by as many people as possible, turning to him in repentance of sin and in saving faith in Christ. And being ambassadors for Christ also means obeying the great commandment to love our neighbour as ourselves. Believers cannot sit silent. We cannot sit unperturbed when we see God's good design for human beings being undermined and subverted. Because we know the damage that this will cause to our neighbour. As ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a duty to respond. And so Christians must resist radical gender ideology, which is teaching, falsely teaching individuals that they can choose their own sex and in so doing is distorting creation. We must contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception because of the dignity and the worth that God has given human life. And we must defend God's good design for marriage and the family unit because he has given that to human beings from creation. That is how he has designed us to live. Deviating from our maker's design inevitably brings harm and brings judgment in eternity. Men and women in our fallen world need kindness. They need love, but they do not need endorsement. If you and I affirm that which we know to be wrong, then we lead men and women further and further away from the God who has created them. We are commanded to call all men and women to turn from sin and to be reconciled to God through Christ. But we cannot separate God from the truth about God revealed in his word. So this afternoon, as we think about some of the challenges facing our province and facing our whole nation, let us remember that we speak out because we are living out our identity in Christ as ambassadors for him to speak the truth in love and to love in truth. So with this biblical background in mind, let's have a look at some of the issues currently challenging us today. We know from Genesis chapter 1 
and verses 26 and 27, that our identity as either male or female is central to God's creation of human beings in his image. God has deliberately, he has purposefully created men and women different from one another, but interdependent upon one another. Men and women are equally made in the image of God, but equal does not mean the same thing as sameness. Each sex has its own distinct role to play in God's design for the family unit, in God's design for human society, and in God's design for his church. But radical gender ideology is seeking to completely destroy the distinction between male and female that God in his wisdom has set in place. Gender ideology teaches, it falsely teaches, that every single person has a gender identity which may or may not match with their biological sex. It says that a person's subjective internal feelings of gender are who they really are and that these subjective internal feelings override the objective biological reality of our bodies. But of course the truth is that our body is not separate from the real you. The Bible teaches that a person is a coherent whole, both body and soul together. But this belief, this false belief that a person can be trapped in the wrong gender, as society puts it that they are transgender, that belief has taken hold in many areas of our national life. In fact, across many Western countries. The 2004 Gender Recognition Act here in the United Kingdom allows an adult to change their legal sex, providing they have lived for at least two years as if they were a member of the opposite sex. So under this law, which has been in place in our nation since 2004, a man in his 50s who has fathered children can be issued with a birth certificate stating that he was born female. And in fact, 5,000 such certificates have been issued in the UK under the terms of this legislation. Now, 5,000 is a lot of people in comparison to the population of Kalinji. But this is 5,000 across the whole of the UK, a population of 60 to 65 million, so over a 17-year window. So it actually shows what a tiny, tiny number of people are involved. But despite the tiny numbers involved, activists are seeking to take the law even further. In 2018, Westminster held a public consultation on making it even easier and quicker to change legal sex. But thankfully, at the end of last year, they announced that they were abandoning these plans. This is an answer to prayer. God has graciously restrained what could have been brought into law at the present time. And on a human level, it's a tribute to the many Christians who wrote to their MPs about the issue and who responded to the consultation and who prayed. But activists and campaigners are not giving up. The Women and Equalities Committee at Westminster is conducting an inquiry into the same thing. So pray that these proposals will not return. And despite this encouraging restraint, or the restraint we're thankful for, the impact of gender ideology, particularly on children and young people, is vastly increasing. There has been a dramatic rise 
in the numbers of children in recent years claiming to be transgendered. In the year 2009 to 2010, the NHS's Gender Identity Development Service, which is the service that treats under-18s in this category, received 77 referrals. So that was 2009 to 2010. But last year, 2019 to 2020, the same service received 2,728 referrals. A massive increase. It used to be that the majority of referrals were from boys, but now nearly three quarters are from girls. Many experts are concerned that this trend is being driven by social influences, particularly online influences. Teenagers experiencing what are fairly common adolescent struggles are being encouraged to think about themselves as transgender. And the Christian Institute has prepared a couple of briefings uh, to inform you uh, of more details on these issues and I would give out in a talk and I have in place of a normal literature table during the pandemic, I give people pre-packs of leaflets uh, so that nobody else has touched the leaflets, only the recipient. So within the packs, uh, there's five leaflets in the packs and two of them uh, look at the issue of gender ideology and how this matter can be viewed as a social contagion. So they give you uh, a little bit more background. But what's happening in our nation is that every year, hundreds of gender-confused children are being given courses of puberty-blocking drugs, and those drugs are being described as living experiments. They have largely unknown long-term consequences, but we do know that they affect bone density, they affect fertility, and they possibly affect brain development. And what is more, in up to 90% of cases of childhood confusion about gender, this confusion resolves itself at puberty. But of course, this is the very process that is being blocked by the drugs. So almost all of the children taking these blockers then go on to receive more damaging hormone treatment. However, there has been some encouraging news just in December past. The High Court in London ruled that in order to be given puberty-blocking drugs, children need to understand their potential life-changing consequences. Three High Court judges ruled that it is highly unlikely that children aged 13 and under could ever grasp enough to genuinely consent to this process, and it is very doubtful that 14- and 15-year-olds could do so. Kira Bell, the lady in this picture, who is now aged 23, brought the case against the NHS Gender Identity Development Service after she had been given hormone-blocking drugs as a teenager. This ruling should protect children uh, from this process. However, the NHS is considering an appeal. Christian believers need to be clear about what the Bible has to say on this issue and clear about how to answer the challenges this issue is presenting. That's true, both at a public level, as the church declares biblical truth to society as a whole, but it's also true at a personal level as well. Profound pastoral concerns are involved with this issue, and Christians need both grace and wisdom as we seek to love our neighbour. We must hold faithfully to the word of God, showing compassion, but not showing Compromise In 1 John chapter 3, believers are called to love in deed, i.e. in our action, 
but we're also called to love in truth. And specifically, we must continue to hold that it is wrong for the medical profession to deliberately mutilate a healthy body to match the mental wishes of someone who thinks themselves to be trapped in the wrong gender. Instead, the medical profession should be aimed at helping people come to accept the body they have been born with. We are seeing lives damaged by the current approach. The number of detransitioners is increasing. These are people who undergo uh, this treatment and then regret it and revert back to their birth sex. One detransitioner told Sky News she has heard from hundreds of people expressing their regret of undergoing this reassignment surgery. And of course, some of the treatment is irreversible. There are people who have left themselves in desperately, desperately sad situations where they have done permanent damage to their bodies. We must be praying about these issues. We must give thanks that the government has restrained the plans that it was seeking to bring in to make it even easier and quicker to change legal sex. We can give thanks for the Kira Bell ruling on puberty-blocking drugs. But we still need to pray for the protection of children and adults from this harmful ideology. We must pray that the dangers of those blocking drugs will be exposed and pray for people like Lou who have already been victims of these wrong policies and laws. And we should pray too that churches and individual believers will be gracious but also courageous in upholding biblical truth that we were created as either male or female in the image of God. We want to move on and talk briefly about a second issue this afternoon and that relates to the sanctity of human life. We know from scripture that all human life is created in the image of God and our starting point must be Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 which say and God said let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. So this is foundation. It should determine how we view ourselves and other people. All sorts of creatures and animals were created after their own kinds, but human beings alone were made in the image of God. And this is true even after the fall, as Genesis 9 makes clear. And we must defend the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. It is God who gives life, God who sustains life, and only God who has the authority to take life away. And of course, as with the issue of transgenderism, the issues of abortion and euthanasia, they are not only issues of doctrine, they are issues of doctrine, but they are not just issues of doctrine. They're pastoral issues too. It's possible they may have painful association for some of us gathered here. But with all the issues the Christian Institute deals with, clear Bible principles must be applied to many different practical situations with compassion, but without compromise. And I would commend to you a booklet the Christian Institute has produced called When Does Human Life Begin? It's an easy-to-read explanation of the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of human life from 
conception. I don't have copies in your literature pack, but it is available from the Institute and from our website, and it does give more information than I can do in a short time this afternoon. But it is because human life is created in God's image, because human life is intrinsic value and worth, that we can conclude that abortion, that is destroying human embryos between conception and birth, that cloning, that euthanasia and assisted suicide are all wrong. And yet what do we find in our United Kingdom today? Well, I don't yet have the figures for 2020, but in 2019, there were 223,102 babies aborted in England, Scotland and Wales in that one year. That amounts to almost 600 babies being aborted every day on the mainland during for all three, six, five days of 2019. And of those babies aborted, only not point not six percent were carried out because there was any suggestion of a risk to a mother's life or health. The vast, vast, vast majority, 98.5%, were carried out for purely social reasons. Well, as believers, we must defend the sanctity of all human life from conception. And this is true, even if an unborn child might be born with a disability. An unborn child who has a disability has no less entitlement to life than any other child. And sadly, as well as those colossal abortion figures on the British mainland, you will be well aware that in the summer of 2019, July of 2019, MPs at Westminster from English, Scottish and Welsh constituencies voted in overwhelming numbers to overturn the pro-life legal framework that had operated here in this province. Uh, And as a result of the changes to the law in 2019, in March of last year, the day before Westminster went into early recess because of the COVID lockdown, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland laid new abortion regulations before the floor of the House of Commons, and those came into effect in April of last year. And during the first 14 months of the operation of those new regulations, approximately 1,500 babies have been aborted in this province. So in just over the first year, a month or two out, beyond the first year of those regulations, 1,500 babies have been aborted here as a result of that. Those regulations go further than the 67 Act on the mainland during the first 12 weeks of a pregnancy. They allow a baby to be aborted here for any reason, Uh, And then, as with the 67 Act, they allow babies to be aborted up to 24 weeks for a wide range of reasons and up to birth on grounds of disability. And this category of disability under the 67 Act is now included to uh, include things like Down syndrome or conditions such as cleft palate and club foot, which are treatable. And under the regulations, Here in Northern Ireland, there is no requirement for a doctor to be involved at any stage. An abortion can be signed off by one nurse or one midwife. And as I've already said, since April of last year, approximately 1,500 babies have been aborted in this province. The previous year, so the 1st of April 2019 to the 31st of March 2020, there were only 22 babies aborted in the province. So those regulations have in effect greatly increased the numbers. And currently, each health trust 
in this province oversees abortion provision in their own local area, but activists are demanding that abortion services be commissioned centrally. The Human Rights Commission launched a legal action in January to try and force this, and their case was heard at the High Court in Belfast a fortnight ago. Commissioning is the centralised coordination of abortion services on a province-wide basis through the Department of Health. It will include recruiting dedicated staff within the NHS to performing abortions, allocating specific budgets to fund abortions, increasing capacity in our health service to perform up to 6,500 per year, and a public awareness raising campaign about the availability of this abortion service. Just last month, MPs and peers at Westminster voted overwhelmingly to grant the Secretary of State powers to commission abortion services here over the heads of the Northern Ireland Executive Ministers as Stormont. We must pray that he would not use these powers and pray that the sanctity of life will once again be restored in our province. And in addition to these developments in this province, there's also been a further push to extend uh, abortion availability on the mainland under the guise uh, of emergency COVID legislation. Uh, in April of last year, uh, the government allowed introduced measures to allow women in England, Wales and Scotland to take abortion pills in their own homes up to 10 weeks into pregnancy in England and Wales and up to 12 weeks in Scotland simply following uh, a telephone call uh, or an online survey with, or an online consultation with a doctor. This was un introduced under the banner of emergency COVID legislation, but Westminster and the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Senate are all seeking to make this arrangement a permanent one. We must pray that such laws will not become permanent, and that our nation will be brought to repentance such that we once again affirm the value of every single human life. I'm conscious time is moving on, but there are two more issues I want to talk to you about in more brief. Uh, many, many of you will have heard, if you've been following the news, uh, that politicians at Westminster and at Stormont have debated something called conversion therapy and they want to end conversion therapy but they have not defined what they mean by conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is a term deliberately broad chosen by LGBT activists. Now all of us know there can be quack therapists about who exploit people and who in the past have used abusive practices on people and uh, we, we would not defend that which is abusive and wrong and quack, but activists want the ban to go much further. They are seeking to catch the ordinary work of churches. They are calling for the new law to cover prayer, preaching and pastoral conversations. In other words, these LGBT activists want to use the criminal law to force Christian believers to endorse LGBT ideology. Now that may not be what some politicians intend, but it could well be the result of an overbroad ban. LGBT activists could be handed a veto on the preaching and the practice of churches. 
One of the prominent advocates of such a ban is this lady, Jane Ozan. She's a synod member of the Church of England, uh, and she sat on Westminster's LGBT advisory panel, panel until earlier this year. And Jane Ozan claims that church prayer ministry is conversion therapy, and she attacks churches for teaching that the practice of homosexuality is sinful. Jane says that she wants conversion therapy to be made a criminal offence. And another ex-evangelical is the Reverend Steve Chalk, who is a prominent advocate of a ban. He argues that pastoral care for those experiencing homosexual temptations or informal prayer and sermons that do not affirm LGBT identities are damaging and require state intervention. And a former Christian singer, Vicky Beeching, has claimed that the church harmed her mental health, blaming years of being taught that same-sex relationships were sinful. Vicky Beeching claims to have been through various forms of conversion therapy, which she said include being encouraged to read Christian books. And of course, the BBC has said that conversion therapy involves treatments ranging from psychotherapy to religious teaching and discussion. It's very clear from the comments of those advocating a ban that they want it to cover the ordinary everyday work of churches, including mainstream Bible teaching on sexual behaviour. And sadly, many politicians are buying into this agenda and they are muddling the ordinary work of churches with coercive and abusive practices that have long been discredited and in many cases are already illegal anyway. Westminster debated the issue in March uh, and some MPs branded prayer and pastoral support as conversion therapy. One English MP praised the Australian state of Victoria which recently passed a draconian conversion therapy law ban. In Victoria, pastoral advice and prayer that uphold Bible teaching on sexual behaviour has been labelled conversion therapy and has been outlawed. And church ministers will be re-educated by the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission in Victoria as to how they can now comply with the new law. Murray Campbell is a pastor in Melbourne in Victoria and he has written, If someone asks for prayer that they might live a sexual life in accordance with biblical principles, and I then pray in accordance with their request, I will be breaking the law and can face criminal charges. He went on, I'm talking about prayer and pastoral conversation. What happens when Christian people are prohibited by law from speaking and praying in line with our biblical beliefs, even when people come and ask for this help? And of course, it's not just Christian pastors who have raised objection. There are some free speech campaigners, including some uh, who live homosexual lifestyles, who have criticised the moves to ban conversion therapy as well. But what is at stake? Well, it's really the basic Bible teaching on conversion to Christ. It involves faith accompanied by repentance. And so in certain cases it becomes illegal to call people to repentance, then in those cases, the gospel becomes illegal. So the everyday church life could be beset by risks of prosecution. 
Here in Northern Ireland, we have already this year had the example of Nelson McCausland, a member of the Education Authority Board, and his case illustrates the dangers. On his Facebook account, Nelson McCausland shared a link to an article about the Christian conversion of Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook's a man in the USA who used to practice homosexuality, but then was converted to faith in Christ and turned from that lifestyle. Uh, He says he still experiences temptations to engage in homosexuality, and he has not been through any therapy other than the call to faith and repentance. But sharing Beckett Cook's testimony led to calls for Nelson McCausland to be sacked from the Education Authority and accusations that he had promoted conversion therapy. He was doing nothing of the sort. He was simply sharing the testimony of someone's conversion to Christ. But the vitriol experienced by Nelson McCausland, and if you watch this you could see some of the vitriol from the BBC, it shows that it is the gospel itself that is the real target for activists. Government ministers have called conversion therapy abhorrent, but they've not made clear about what they have in mind. Praying with people or sharing the gospel with them is not abhorrent behaviour, but a widely drawn conversion therapy ban could make it illegal. The government will be announcing more detail in the coming months Uh, And it's likely there will be a public consultation here, as there will be on the mainland. And if you're on the Christian Institute mailing list, we will send you details about responding uh, when the time is appropriate. But do please pray that any ban on conversion therapy will not outlaw the ordinary work of churches. And pray that politicians both here and on the mainland will see the difference between Christian conversion and so-called conversion therapy. Therapy. And please pray for myself and colleagues at the Christian Institute as we seek to respond to this very challenging issue. Well, the final area I want to update you on very briefly is the work of the Christian Institute's Legal Defence Fund. There have been many cases of Christian believers facing hostility within the UK in recent years. And most of us here are well aware of the case of Asher's Baking Company here in this province, a family-run bakery that was taken through the courts by the Equality Commission because they simply declined to decorate a campaign cake with slogans calling for homosexual marriage. And through the work of the Legal Defence Fund, the Christian Institute has had the privilege of supporting Christian believers standing for biblical truth. And I want to mention two cases that we are supporting at the present time. They're closely linked. They involved Stirling Free Church in Scotland and Mr. Kenneth Ferguson, both of whom are taking legal action against the Robertson Trust, which is the largest independent grant-making trust in Scotland. Kenneth Ferguson was chief executive of the Robertson Trust, a position he was appointed to in 2011. He is also an elder in Stirling Free Church, which paid an annual fee to use the trust premises for their services on the Lord's Day. And in order to avoid any conflict of interest, Kenneth Ferguson declared his involvement with the church on the trust's register of interest, and he took no part in the negotiations between the trust and the church about the rental. However, the trust chairwoman Shona McPherson objected to the rental, 
According to legal papers, this was because Stirling Free Church do not believe in same-sex marriage. In fact, she is said to have become enraged on learning about the agreement and blamed Kenneth Ferguson. The church had its contract torn up. They were ordered to leave the building, with the trust claiming it had a policy of not renting premises for activities that promote religion. But the church's lawyers have since discovered that no such policy existed. The trust then began disciplinary action against Kenneth Ferguson, and he was dismissed from post in March of last year, with the trust citing vague performance issues. This was despite him previously receiving glowing appraisals, and despite him overseeing substantial growth within the trust during his tenure as chief executive. Kenneth Ferguson was highly thought of by his colleagues. They were shocked and in some cases tearful at the trust's treatment of him. He had worked under four different chairs at the trust and his relationship with the previous three had been entirely positive. So with the backing of the Christian Institute's Legal Defence Fund and our our staff, Kenneth Ferguson is challenging the Robertson Trust for unfair dismissal for religious discrimination and for religious harassment. His hearing took place at an employment tribunal online and uh, the last days of the hearing were just three weeks ago. We are waiting for the outcome and Stirling Free Church is also taking the trust to court alleging religious discrimination over the cancellation of the rental agreement. Uh, The first two days of their case have been heard, uh, but the remaining days are expected to be heard later this year. Please pray for a sense of God's peace for all those involved, particularly for Kenneth Ferguson and his family. And pray for a just outcome in both cases. It is important to show that the belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman is a belief worthy of respect and protection in our democratic society. There's a little bit more information about some of the work of our legal team in the literature in your packs, but I should also say that if you or any Christian believer you know experiences difficulty because of your stand on an issue of biblical principle, then do get in touch with us. Uh, We do have lawyers on our staff team who may well be able uh, to help you. Obviously, if you're in trouble for a parking ticket or a speeding fine or dog fouling or dropping litter, uh, don't ring us. Uh, But if it's an issue of biblical principle that's at stake, then do get in touch and we may well be able to help. Well, in closing, what can we do in response to those issues? We've looked at our identity in Christ, our calling to be ambassadors for him in this fallen and decaying world. We've looked at some greatly challenging issues in our nation. So are there any things we can do to help uh, stand practically for the honour of our Saviour and for the good of our neighbour? Well, I'll give you three practical points. The first of them is simply be informed. Being informed or being aware of what is going on is the first step to being an effective Christian influence. If we want to influence the neighbourhood, the community, the nation around us for the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to know what is happening in our nation. Those issues are not pleasant, I know that. But if we turn a blind eye, those issues won't go away. They will come with greater vengeance upon our children and our grandchildren. So as Christians, 
We need to be aware of what's going on, and I know this afternoon a good number of you are already kept informed by the Christian Institute, but if any of you aren't kept informed or aren't on our mailing list in your packs, there are little cards like these. There's a pen as well. You can simply fill in your name and address on one of the cards, pop the card in this grey basket, which I'll leave on the table here, and you can join our mailing list. And for any other Scots folk here this afternoon, it is completely free. Uh, There's no charge. It's a free offer. And those who get the mailings will testify, I'm sure, that they are informative, they're helpful. We don't bombard you with information, but we do write uh, and give you, uh, when it's appropriate to do so, and give you a clear picture of what is going on, and we give practical ideas for how to respond. So we should and we must be informed. So if you're not on our mailing list, don't forget to fill out the card and leave in the basket before you go. Second practical point is to pray. I have spoken here before on 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the call to Christians to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. We are called to pray for those ruling the nation so that we would have freedom to live godly lives in our day-to-day callings and neighbourhoods and that there would be gospel freedom preserved in the whole nation. Those things are being challenged. So as Christian believers, we ought to pray all the more for those who bear bear rule over us. And thirdly, and finally, we should take action. From time to time, the Christian Institute will ask those on our mailing list to write to their MP, or will ask them to respond to a public consultation. And can I encourage you, to do that. You might be saying, well, I wouldn't know what to write. Well, guess what? If you get the mailings, we'll give you all the information you need. We'll give you the address to write to, the name of the person to address it to, and we'll give you three or four things you can say in the letter. The only thing we won't do is give the envelope and the stamp to post it. But up to that point, we make it straight forward. And it does make a difference. There are disappointments. We're greatly disappointed about how the abortion issue has been pushed in our nation uh, over and above the heads of so many people in Northern Ireland. We're greatly grieved at what's happened with the redefinition of marriage in relation to it. But there are other areas where evil plans have been restrained. Westminster or some at Westminster were seeking to make it very easy and quick for people to change legal sex. And then the government dropped their plans just late last year. Now that did not happen in a vacuum. It happened because Christians responded to the consultation in big numbers. They raised genuine concerns and they wrote to those in authority. So God can use Christians up and down the nation praying and writing letters for his glory and for the good of our neighbour in our nation. 